I don't know about y'all, but I love sports. I love sports. Growing up here in Watauga County, I enjoyed playing baseball and basketball, and I had the honor of being able to play college basketball, and that brings me to something. I love college basketball, and if you know me personally, you know that I am a North Carolina Tar Heels fan. And I know that y'all are a little tired this morning because you stayed up super late last night, and you might have watched a game on TV that had the Tar Heels play the Duke Blue Devils. As I was gathered with our friends in the multi-purpose room, we prayed a prayer that God would um, exercise the demon deacons and the Blue Devils uh, when we opened up in our gathering together. Um, I say that jokingly, I love sports. I love sports. doesn't matter what you're a fan of. If you love sports, you love to play the sport not because of the rules of the game, but because you love the game. Rules in a game are important because they set the foundation of what is and what is not allowed in the game. The rules, they set the appropriate boundaries that bring order and give clear direction of how we are to play together. And without the rules, the game itself would not be fair. It wouldn't be fun. In fact, honestly, it would be chaotic. For, for instance, a basketball game that didn't enforce fouls in the game could potentially end up with a fight breaking out and arguing over what is them, and he has brought them out of horrible circumstances, and he has given them freedom. He has freed them from slavery so that they may follow the one true God who has heard their cries there in Egypt. And these laws that God gives them, they set the boundaries for how they're to live in response to their salvation. And these boundaries are necessary for them to protect them from harm, but also to help them live within the will of God. These laws proclaim the nature of the God they now serve, the one who would save them, and their obedience to follow them will set them apart from the rest of the world so that they might be a light to the Gentiles. But the law itself was intended to point them to God, and it was never intended to be a substitute for God. Just as we play a sport for the love of the game while also obeying the rules, so the Israelites were called to let their love of God, which came from his merciful salvation, direct their obedience to his law. Their obedience was a direct response out of their love for what he had done for them. And God's commands given to them were not seen as burdensome to them, and their obedience to them reflected the God that they served. And so as we think about this and God giving them the law initially through Moses, in Matthew's gospel, we are given a new Moses in the name of Jesus the Christ, who comes and who gathers on a mountainside, and he teaches what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, and he takes these laws and he elevates them, because Jesus is the great teacher, and he reiterates these laws to his people. In fact, the Gospels tell us that Jesus is a teacher like no other. In fact, he teaches as one with authority very differently from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And so he gives us what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and he says in our text today that he's not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Now, Jesus is Jewish. 
That's important for us to know. Sometimes we get a little confused in the Christian church and we think that Jesus is Christian. Christianity came from Jesus after Jesus was dead and resurrected, but Jesus himself was not Christian. He was Jewish, and he knew his Bible, and his Bible constituted of the law and the prophets. And we call it the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and all of the prophets. And Jesus knew them very well. But the problem is there were people in the region who believed that Jesus' teachings and his actions seemed to contradict the law itself. They thought that Jesus was a bit unorthodox when it came to his interpretation of the law, which prompts him to clarify that he's not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus is literally saying that he's not setting the Hebrew Scriptures aside. He's not even making them less important but that he seeks to fulfill them in his obedience, even as he offers us a deeper meaning to them. In fact, the Hebrew word for fulfill, kum, means to raise or to lift up, which is the same word for resurrection. Essentially, Jesus is resurrecting the law and the prophets, the Jewish holy scriptures. In fact, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not one dot of an I or one cross of a T will drop out of the law. You see, Jesus can't truly be the Jewish Messiah if he himself doesn't uphold and seek to obey the Torah. So Jesus doesn't abolish the law. Rather, he elevates the law to a higher standard. For instance, he says later in his Sermon on the Mount, "'You have heard that it was said, "'You shall not commit adultery.'" But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says it's not just a physical act called adultery, that if you are looking at someone and thinking about that, you have committed that too. He raises the law higher and makes it even harder. But the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, they think that Jesus is abolishing and breaking the laws, doing things that seem to contradict their understanding of it. They've seen him, for instance, picking grain on the Sabbath day and eating with his disciples, and he even healed a man on the Sabbath, breaking the command set forth in the Ten Commandments that you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath day. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would also... Well, they would add laws to keep them from breaking God's law. And you can find these in the Mishnah. They would put a hedge around God's law. And they'd say, for instance, well, you can only take this many steps on the Sabbath day before it constitutes work and before you break God's law. And sometimes there were circumstances that could alter, um, alter their understanding. For instance, healing was permissible on the Sabbath day if it was a life or death situation. But if it wasn't, then you could essentially just wait an extra day before you actually provide care to someone. Jesus, however, he goes back to the purpose of the Sabbath law in Mark's gospel saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, any action that promoted their rest, relief, and general well-being was permissible for Jesus on the Sabbath day. In fact, he said it's the most appropriate day to do these things. Jesus sought to fulfill the purpose for which the law was given, not accepting the rabbinical interpretation of it. In fact, he charged the scribes, those who were students and teachers of the law, saying that they had transgressing the commandment of God for the sake of their tradition. 
You're not even following God's laws because you're doing your traditional stuff and you're missing the point, says Jesus. And he goes on later and says in Matthew's gospel that the scribes bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders. You're making it harder for the people of God to follow God by burdening them with more laws on top of the law God's already given them. You're missing it. In contrast, Jesus says to them, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus did not relax the requirements of the law, nor did he lower the standard of righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees required. In fact, Jesus says, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Once again, Jesus raises the bar in relation to the law, challenging us to be more righteous than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and that our entrance into the kingdom of heaven is dependent upon that. Seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? But righteousness is understood as right living, which is dictated by the law of God. It's what it tells us to do. And we can't know what right living is apart from God giving us the rules of the game. But here's the question. The question is whether our obedience is simply out of obligation or out of love. Is it out of obligation or is it out of love? See, Jesus knows that obedience begins inwardly. In Psalm 40, verse 8, it says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. And then Jesus goes on to tell us in the Gospels to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In other words, when our hearts and our minds seek to do the will of God, we obey naturally as a response out of our love for God. It's not burdensome or even obligatory. We desire to serve God in faithfulness for the right reasons. Let me take it a different direction. Let me bring it home. Jesus often spoke in things we can understand, so let me speak in something that might be more helpful. If I tell my son, don't hit your brother, okay? He can respond in one of three ways. First, he stops, and he removes himself from his brother altogether so that he's not tempted to hit him while also avoiding the wrath of his dad, okay? Or he thinks to himself, he didn't say I couldn't kick him. And rather than punching him, he's found a loophole that allows him to justify his disobedience. Or he remembers that his father has never hit him or others. In fact, he's been taught that hitting his brother is not the way he's supposed to treat him. And instead of avoiding him, he begins to treat him as he would want to be treated. Righteousness, it's not about removing ourselves from everything or setting up additional boundaries simply to prevent us from disobeying nor is it seeking another interpretation to justify what we want to do. 
Rather, it's remembering the God who's been good to us and who's taught us the right way and for us to live into it. The prophet Micah says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. See, God has shown us through His law and even more clearly through His Son, Jesus, our teacher, who upholds the law with every dotted I and every cross T, what righteousness really looks like. And yet our salvation is not dependent on our righteousness, for we are justified by our faith through Christ. We have received Christ's righteousness as a gift through His obedience to the law because we are incapable of fulfilling it perfectly. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The righteousness that Jesus is speaking of is not about earning our salvation, but about personal righteousness that we're called to live into as the people of God. And he's not telling us that we should surpass the Pharisees and the teachers of the law by going to church a little bit more or by putting a little bit more into the offering plate or by being just a nicer person. Rather, righteousness is connected to the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are. In fact, it's connected to the things of being merciful, offering forgiveness, and seeking justice, which is rooted in the ways in which God deals with each and every one of us. So I find that the law and the gospel go hand in hand. Just as the Israelites were given the law after they were saved from slavery, so we too are challenged to obedience because we have been saved from the slavery of sin. You see, Jesus doesn't abolish the law. In fact, he fulfills it in every way, showing us how we are to live in relationship with God and with one another. And here's the thing. Jesus did not fulfill the law out of obligation. He did it out of love for his Father. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 10.4 that for Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The law always points us to the lawgiver, which is why Jesus is the end of the law. And if we love God, if we are truly thankful for what God has done for us in Jesus' death and resurrection, then we are to follow Jesus not out of obligation and not out of fear, but out of love. Because here's the deal. If we follow out of obligation, we follow the letter of the law like the Pharisees and the scribes, missing the spirit of what the law is directing us toward, And in doing so, we run the risk of being self-righteous and only upholders of good doctrine. In other words, we play the game just to follow the rules. But if we follow out of love, then we are embracing the spirit of the law, which frees us to enjoy the Christian life to which we have been called. 
And this righteousness, it shines, like Jesus says, like a, a lamp on its stand or like a city built on a hill. And it's evident that we have a love for the creator of the game we call life. So my prayer for us today, God's prayer for his church that he would not only be our teacher, for he indeed is our teacher. He is the greatest rabbi there has ever been. He is the teacher of all righteousness. But that we would listen, and by listening that we would respond. And by responding, we would live in the way in which God would have us live. Not of obligation. Not by checking boxes to say we've done it, or to feel good about ourselves. But to follow because of God's love for us and our love for God. Remembering his promise that whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, may it be for us this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today we come to God's table. Scripture tells us that many will come from north and south and from east and west to gather at the table of our Lord to feast with Him in the kingdom of heaven. Today it is God who invites you to come, those who trust and believe, to come and to receive His sustenance here at this table. It is Jesus who invites His disciples even disciples who doubt. You know, there's this interesting passage at the end of Matthew's gospel. After Jesus is resurrected, he's with his disciples. They gather on that mountain where he taught, and they worshiped him, and it says, but some doubted. That gives me the most comfort of probably any scripture in the gospels, that even those closest to Jesus might have doubts, even when they've been in the presence of the resurrected Christ. It is the same Jesus who invites those who even have doubts to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Friends, you are invited to come and to receive. Let us pray together. Holy God, it is our greatest joy to give you thanks and praise. For you are our creator, our redeemer, and sustainer of all our lives. You've never given up on us in ages past or even now in the present. And we know that your love never fails and that our sin is no match for your conquering grace. So in your goodness and in your love and in the fullness of time, you sent us Jesus the Christ, the living bread, to lift up the oppressed and to fill the hungry with good things. As we come to your table this day, we are reminded that born of Mary, he shares our life. Eating with sinners, he welcomes us. Guiding his children, he leads us. Visiting the sick, He heals us. Dying on the cross, He saves us. Risen from the dead, He gives us new life. Living with you, He prays for us. And seated at your right hand, He leads us to eternal life. And so we praise you that Christ reigns with you in glory and will come again to make all things new. Lord Jesus, you promise rest to those who are weary and who carry heavy burdens. And so we lift up to you those in our church and in our community who are struggling with their health. We pray that you would put your healing hand upon them, restoring them, Lord. And as we gather today, Lord, we also pray 
for the war in Ukraine to cease. We pray for those who have been upended, who've lost loved ones, who've lost their cities. We pray for your grace in the midst of their hurt, their pain. And Lord, we even pray for those who bring destruction, those who are forced to carry out orders who would rather not, the people of Russia who are affected by sanctions, who did not desire this war. God, we pray that you would be active, sovereign, and that you would help bring this to a close. There may be peace, that there may be peace on this earth. Help us, Lord, to be the peacemakers that you have called us to be and help us to care for those that you place in our lives. As we come to your table this day, we pray, O God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we might boldly live as your body in the world, pointing others towards your love. And May your Spirit also bless your gifts of bread and wine, that the bread that we break and the cup that we bless might be the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. And by your Spirit, Make us one with Christ and one with all who share this meal in every place. For as this bread is Christ's body for us, send us out to be the body of Christ in the world. We offer this prayer in the strong name of Jesus Christ, who taught us all to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, on the night that our Lord was arrested, he gathered with his disciples in an upper room, and it was there that he shared the Passover meal with them. And Jesus, being the teacher that he is, he taught them about this meal a little differently on that night. And he began to speak of that meal in terms of himself. And so after giving thanks to God, Jesus took the bread and he broke it before them. And he said to them, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, Jesus took the cup. So this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the saving death of our risen Lord until he comes again. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Friends, at this time, I invite you to find the elements in the back of your pews. And I invite you to receive the bread. For this is Christ's body, broken for you. And I invite you to receive the cup, for this is Christ's blood shed for you. Let us pray together. 
Holy God, we give you thanks that through your word and through this sacrament, you have given us your Son, who is the true eternal bread from heaven and the food of eternal life. And so, God, we pray that you would strengthen us in your service, that our daily living might show our gratitude and our obedience and love for you, that others may come to know of your saving grace. For we offer our prayer in the name above all names, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And let all of God's children joyfully say, Amen.